Welcome to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. I'm Danielle Prezanigan, a dancer and physical therapist specializing in the treatment of performing artists in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jake Manley, an athletic trainer and physical therapist at Pro PT in Winchester, Virginia. I lift weights, and the only time I dance is if I've had a couple beers at a wedding. Though we come from such different backgrounds, we're both incredibly passionate about the performing arts. We hope to educate you on a variety of topics about the health and wellness of performing artists to optimize your performance, longevity, and success. Welcome to the show. I just want to give you a real quick word from our sponsors. Pro, the company that I work for, which is a pretty awesome company if I may say so myself, is now offering virtual health and wellness coaching to help facilitate you staying active and achieving your goals. You guys can speak one-on-one with me, a licensed physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength coach, um, to discuss training, injury, rehab, and learn more about how you can stay accountable, take back control, and optimize your health and fitness, even during this, this weird time. Our approach is evidence-based, comprehensive, and focuses entirely on you. One-time consultations as well as long-term programs are available. Regardless of what your specific needs are, we've got you covered. For more information, go ahead and contact me directly. My info will be in the description. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. Today, we are joined by someone who's near and dear to my heart. She's seen me at my worst in probably the worst practical I've ever done in my entire life. (laughs) And has also gotten to enjoy the antics of me trying to do Pilates. And that is Michelle Pye. Michelle Pye graduated from the University of Pittsburgh with her BS in athletic training, then went on to Illinois State University to complete a post-professional master's in athletic training. After working as a certified athletic trainer in her hometown of Detroit, Michigan, for a few years, Michelle then went on to complete her doctorate of philosophy in applied neuromechanics at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Currently, Dr. Pai is a certified athletic trainer for the entire conservatory department at Shenandoah University, an assistant professor for the Division of Athletic Training, and associate director of the Performing Arts Medicine Program. Michelle, I'm so pumped to have you on this. Well, thank you. I'm I'm excited to be here and just super proud of you, bro. Like, every time, it's like, what's Jacob up to now? Oh, another podcast. Oh, he's just competing he's in the strongest net. Like... <laughs> From every aspect of your life, it's always something amazing, and I love to support and be a part. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, Danielle, I don't know that if I've told you this. I probably told you this when we interviewed Rose, but Michelle is probably one of the strongest influences in getting me into the world of dance. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of respect for her. If I, if I may quote, and this may not be an exact quote, <laughs> but it's only another 15 more credits. Is that- <laughs> Yeah. That's exact. That's exact. <laughs> that doesn't sound that bad. I think it's worth it. Right? Exactly. I'm pretty sure that was the last half of the quote that I didn't I didn't quote from her. Right. And <laughs> I mean, Jacob, if you think about you had how many credits throughout Shenandoah time? What's 15 compared to 123 or however many you had? Yeah, I think I think when I looked at it, it was just under 150. So it's like maybe 145 or 143 or something like that. Wow. Yeah. 
I basically did another round of college, but grad school college. On steroids. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Yeah, it was it was totally worth it. To, to, totally worth it. Totally. Yes, totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Michelle, for some of our listeners that maybe may not know you as well as I do, obviously, can you give us a little bit more information on your background in dance and then how you got into the rehab field? Absolutely. So I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and as any little girl, I just wanted to dance. My father actually was a dancer himself. Now, not professional, but every wedding, he was the one on the floor. That sounds so, like... Exactly. <laughs> he does. <laughs> so my father danced, and we would dance around the house a lot. So as a little girl, I danced all the time. Eventually, they signed me up for ballet and tap and jazz and African, and I did dance at Detroit Windsor Dance Academy. Um, I did that all the way through high school. And I was lucky enough to have my godfather, who was a massage therapist. Now, he, more on the music side, actually worked for jazz festivals that came into the city of Detroit. So he worked providing massages to musicians. And one day I said, well, I'm hurt. Godfather, help me. (laughs) And he, you know, he would laugh and he would just massage my shoulders or something simple because I was seven. But... At that point, I was just like, hey, this is what dancers need. I also had my brother. He was, you know, athlete, went to football, played baseball, and came home injured all the time. But he had healthcare professionals at all of his games, at all of his practices. And early on, I realized I don't have that same treatment, and that wasn't fair. So by the time I got to high school, I talked to my godfather, and I told him, I think I want to do rehab for dancers. How someone in high school knew that's what they wanted, I don't know, but I knew. And he said, I have the perfect person for you. So while I was in high school, he linked me up with a dual credential DPT ATC who worked all of the performances in Detroit. So she worked Wicked when it would come in town. She worked backstage. And she also did a lot in terms of gymnastics. She used to work for one of the Olympic Uh, committee. So her name is Mary Donahue, and she still works in Detroit. So through high school, I got to shadow her. My godfather now started partnering with her because I was just like, we need a massage therapist too for dancers. So they actually were a tag team, and I would get to shadow them through high school. And that's when I knew I wanted to be a dual credentialed healthcare professional. So that was always the plan. And when I got to University of Pittsburgh, as much as I love dance, and I, I dual majored, actually, so I did dance classes as well as my athletic training classes until about my junior year, where because of clinic, you have to kind of make a decision on what time commitment-wise you're going to choose. And as much as I loved it, I knew I wasn't going to make a life dancing. It wasn't going to be something that could sustain me for my entire life. And then I really started to enjoy the athletic side of athletic training too. So at that point, I was just like, I kind of can do everything I want to do for the dancers through athletic training. Why am I going on to get the DPT? And I talked to my advisor at University of Pittsburgh. His name was Kevin Conley. And I was like, this is really what I want to do. I love the athletic side. I wrestling. 
by far is my favorite sport to work. Now, the two contrasts of, hey, I want to do this wrestling match and make sure I'm working backstage for the Point Park University dance concert was like on the total opposite spectrums, but that's what I wanted. And I love the versatility that athletic training provided me to do that. And Kevin Conley, my program director, was able to make that happen through creating clinical rotations at Point Park, which is a performing arts university, and even with the Pittsburgh Ballet. So even in undergrad, I started dabbling and getting experience working with performers. So that's my background on how I kind of got to athletic training, to performing arts. But how it continued is I went on to Illinois State and you know, as any graduate student, you have to come up with a thesis and you have to do research. So why not combine my passion for dance and rehab and figure out a way to make it into a project? So my master's thesis was comparing performance outcomes in collegiate dancers and collegiate female athletes. So I looked at jump height, lower extremity strength, range of motion, and balance components. And I early on noticed differences, not only in flexibility, but weaknesses in our dance community, but improvements in neuromuscular control, such as balance or jump stabilizations. So that was my thesis. And I was like, I like this. My brain is one of those weird, beautiful minds that <laughs> enjoys research. But once you're done with a research project, what do you do? You tuck it away, you delete all the files, and you walk away because guess what? You made it through, and you'd never want to look back at it. I'm sure you both understand that feeling. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so um, after Illinois State, I just went back to Detroit. I worked for a few years because as a broke student, you need money. And why not live at home while you're doing that, getting money? But after two or three years, I just said I need to go back to the beautiful mind side of myself. And that's how I ended up at UNC Greensboro. What did you research when you were there for your PhD? At UNC Greensboro? Mm -hmm. So I continued my line of comparison between female dancers and female athletes. At this point, I'm looking more at ACL injury rates. So for my dissertation, I was comparing the low rate of ACL injury in our female dancers to that high rate of injury in our female athletes, specifically soccer, basketball, volleyball, the field athletes. Mm -hmm. What I looked at, again, my PhD is in applied neuromechanics, so I'm looking more at that neuromuscular control difference. So I took all 30 subjects, 30 dancers, and 30 female athletes, and we did balance we did unanticipated and anticipated muscle activation measurements. We did drop jumps, looking at kinematics as well as um, kinetic information. And then we even did some nonlinear measurements on that data. So it was providing a neuromuscular profile in terms of these two populations during physical tasks that commonly put athletes and dancers at risk for ACL injury. So that's why we had the drop jump, and the unanticipated and anticipated task was a perturbation that made you mimic a crossover cut or a sidestep cut. So I'll have to share an image with you. So we had this belt that hitches to your waist, and you stand on one leg while you're leaning forward as if you're about to make a cut, and you have two wires that are attached to the sides of your right and left hip. 
So for the unanticipated trials, while they're leaning with their weight fully into that belt, we'll release one cable that really makes them mimic. And we can measure not only the motion um, in all three planes, but also the muscle activation. So that was my dissertation. Make it sound simple. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> no, that sounds complicated. <laughs> that sounds really interesting. I've always wondered why dancers have lower risks of ACL tear. And I, I wondered if it was because dance is, you know what you're doing before you go on stage, right? There's no reactive component to it, whereas all those sports that you said have some reactive part of it. So I think that's fascinating. Yeah, that's always been uh, one of the biggest theories behind the difference in ACL injury rates in these populations. So I, I knew I needed to include some type of unanticipated task to see the difference. So previous research did find that there are muscle reflexes in terms of the timing differences between these two populations. Now in my dissertation, the muscle reflex timing was not different. So how quickly like your hamstrings turned on, there were no differences between the female athletes and the female dancers in my dissertation. But there were two other studies that have found that. So I know other researchers are still looking into that. The one thing that I did find was minimize rotation. So even though the timing of the muscle onset was not different, there was a decrease in the amount of rotation or torque at the knee between the two populations. So a lot more research needs to be done. Is that not the closing sentence for all research projects? But more needs to be done because there is something there, whether it's in their training, whether it's in their postural control, and even how they land, we have a measurement called time to stabilization. So it's not just about how well you're landing and how well you're absorbing that force, but how well do you return to a steady state? How well can you neutralize all of those forces? And dancers did show a quicker time to stabilization. So my next line of research is looking more into augmented feedback. So we know that dancers utilize mirrors all the time. And a lot of our ACL prevention programs are talking about providing that visual feedback for body awareness. And trying to understand if there's something to having that visual feedback that allows you to correct or maintain better alignment in your lower extremity, decreasing the risk for risky positioning, and just better training for posture. Now, are you doing that, are you doing that with the conservatory at Shenandoah? Yes. Yes, I'm doing that with the, <clears throat> with the conservatory at Shenandoah. I'm lucky, honestly, because they are 100% on board with participating in all research studies. And not just the students, but the faculty, the dean, everybody is very supportive in assisting with gaining knowledge. And that's really what research is about. I mean, Jacob, you know that. We wanted to do a kettlebell study and... <laughs> hey, we have a dance class, take them all. <laughs> mm -hmm. So just the, the collaboration and the cooperation at Shenandoah between the health sciences, the health professions, and the conservatory has been amazing. So how did you find yourself at SU? <laughs> Funny story. So actually, after UNC Greensboro, I got my first job teaching at the University of Toledo. And my first job, which let me say this for everyone coming out of college, was to be the program director of an athletic training program. Wow. Do not do that. 
do not do that. That should not be your first job. Um, whoa, it was just so much in terms of the paperwork and you get so pulled away from the actual teaching. I knew I wanted to teach. I knew I wanted to do more research. But being in that position gives you so much of an administrative task. And it was right before an accreditation year for the University of Toledo. Nice. Nice. So I went in there thinking it was, you know, going to be a fun job. I'm only an hour from home. I'm just happy to have a job. Again, broke college student. What else are you going to do? What else are you going to do? Um, but I think probably by my third month there, I knew this was not a healthy work-life balance. One, there was not much guidance in terms of what and how to do this. Not only was I a new uh, program director, we had two new faculty, so none of us knew what was going on. <laughs> so it was the blind leading the blind. And one right. day, we're there late going through paperwork, and my colleague, Janet, she was like, hey, have you heard about Shenandoah? I was like, no, I haven't. I, I don't even know where that is. So she showed me a posting. And I was just like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready to leave. I'm going to fight it out. I'm going to push, push. And I saw Rose's name, Rose Schmid, and her phone number. And I was like, before I apply, let me just call and see what it's about. Rose, as I've mentioned, can talk. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was in my office oh, talking gosh. to Rose casually, but talking to her for the next two hours on the phone about not just the position at Shenandoah, but just about performing arts medicine. And I mean, after that conversation, I was like, yeah, I have to apply and I have to go there. So it was thanks to Janet, who's now teaching at Ohio University in an athlete training program. But yeah, thanks to her. She was just like, no, you should really just check this out. And Rose being talkative, and I'm clearly talkative, too. <laughs> <laughs> Together is dangerous. It is. I'm telling you, those I. Adams excursions are... <laughs> Adventure time. <laughs> um, and so, Michelle, now you're, you're part of the athletic training program as well as the performing arts medicine program. Um, what courses do you teach in those? So for the athletic training program, I teach the therapeutic exercise course for the lower extremity. So I go through the lower quarter in that first summer, and I assist Rose in the orthopedic assessment course for the lower quarter. So for most courses in our program, we'll have two faculty or two, um, two instructors to help with lab, and we have about 20 to 24 students to make sure you have good hands-on. Um, so we co-teach that. And I assist Kim Pritchard at times with the research course when students start to develop their thesis or their capstone projects. In the performing arts medicine program, I teach our kinesiology and anatomy course. I teach our management and assessment of performing artist injury. I teach our research course, capstone and internship course. So my teaching load is heavily in the performing arts medicine, but I'm always there through the athletic training workshop, research projects, all of it. That's a lot of hats to wear. Oh, and I work in the clinic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, it does seem like a lot when you write it out, but it's not, it's not overwhelming. Again, I think the team teaching that we have really helps with the load. 
And the faculty at Shenandoah, we work well together. So if somebody's overwhelmed, if I say, hey, it's concert week, I need, you know, someone to help me with X, Y, and Z, we're always here to help each other. So it makes it enjoyable. I recommend for everyone, find a place you enjoy to work at. Now, can you speak a little bit more about working clinically with a collegiate dance department? What is that like for you? Absolutely. So what I didn't mention is this is my second collegiate dance program that I've worked with. While I was at UNCG, I actually worked as their certified athletic trainer also, and that was my clinical experience or my stipend, my graduate assistantship to pay for uh, college at that time. So there are differences, and it depends on how you set it up. What we have at Shenandoah right now is through my faculty workload, I can provide approximately 10 to 15 hours a week of clinical service to the conservatory. Now, Shenandoah was founded as a conservatory university, so that is really the heartbeat of the university, which means that is a lot of students. Not only the dance department, we have our music theater and we have the musical department. So we treat mainly dancers. I think that's simply because of our proximity in terms of the clinic being directly across the hall from Ewing Dance Studio, which is our main dance studio. But we are slowly getting more and more musicians, music theater, and all of the conservatory, conservatory students into the clinic. What they do is we have a website where you sign up for an appointment, 30-minute slots, and we'll schedule that, come in for your first eval, and then we decide the treatment. We don't treat this clinic as, although um, Rose is in the clinic, we don't treat it as a PT clinic. So in the event someone is coming back from an ACL injury and we know they need consistent rehab three times a week throughout their um, healing process, we're not going to try to take that on in the clinic because between the two of us, it's impossible for us to adequately manage that. Now, we've worked with students and said, you can do one a week here, but we do recommend that you are working. And we constantly refer people to Jacob over at ProPT, but we want you to make sure that you're getting the amount of um, rehabilitation in that you need. And making sure that it's not overloading the clinic and preventing other students from getting in. So we almost serve as a triage to make sure we can refer out when needed and do what we can in-house. We are providing those rehabilitation programs. If we see there's deficits, any type of weaknesses that we need to strengthen, or if there was a recurring injury that you can't figure it out, we're doing your rehab. We're doing the full-on assessment to make sure that we can identify areas that would help you improve and minimize the risk of re-injury. And then I would I would add is because we, we kind of talked about this a little bit, I think before we started recording, just the kind of the community of like relationships in like our area here in Winchester. Mm -hmm. And so if if I have somebody that comes across my schedule that I find out is a collegiate dancer, I will usually, as soon as the eval is over, either shoot Michelle a text or give her a phone call later that night and just say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. You know, what are your thoughts? Is this something that you want assistance with in the clinic, or do you want to just manage it like at Shenandoah? And there's all sorts of different things that go into play as far as like from a cost standpoint, like what is it that they're able to afford? Do they have the transportation to come over there? 
Um, and then, you know, is it show week? Is Michelle in India or something? <laughs> on, India. On like a travel. She goes all over the place for. <laughs> yes, I'm supposed to be in Jamaica right now. But... Yeah. Not right now. No one's traveling. <laughs> no one. All my trips this year have been canceled. But yeah, uh, we do a lot of work travel. We do a lot of presentations, conferences. So Rose and I spent a week in India. I think that's what Jacob's referring to, <laughs> where we taught um, performing arts medicine at a um, medical hospital there to their uh, physical therapy students and MD. It was awesome until I got food poisoning. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. I totally did not mean for you to have to bring that up. <laughs> it's okay. You know, the more you oh, say no. it, the more your, you know, your reflex just stops. Um, but yeah, so basically anytime we get a collegiate dancer, I try to make sure I contact Michelle and same thing. Like if there's somebody, like I know there was a time when you were either in Detroit or doing research or something and you're like, Hey, it's concert week. I'm not available right now. Can you see this person? And usually if I get any message like that within 24 to 48 hours, like I just try to make it happen so that we get like preferential treatment for the, for the dancers that come in. Yeah. So. Not only does it help with the treatment of the dancers, but it helps with the morale of dancers being able to go and feel comfortable seeing healthcare professionals that one understand the demands of the activity that they're participating in, and also that understand that okay, it is concert week. What realistically are we able to do? We're going to do everything that we can to make sure that you stay healthy, and you're still able to do this activity that you love. And I think it it. It has to be done from a team aspect. So I'm glad we have that team in Winchester. And it's cool too, because like I try to help out as much as I can. <laughs> and so like over the years, you see the same people kind of like grow and and they were, the first time I saw them, they were working backstage because they were a freshman and they hadn't gotten a piece in, in the in the, yeah. in the performance yet. And now they're like, you know, leading this this one part of the dance and it's just kind of cool to see that progression of the students as well and then you know like they, they kind of recognize you like oh i've seen i've seen you before so yeah. it's kind of cool to be a part of that absolutely now as far as so it's interesting that you brought up concert week <laughs> and that's a crazy week it, it is that's when like week. everything just like <laughs> hits the fan I feel yes like. always um so what is what is it like, I guess, uh, for you during concert week as everything starts to ramp up? Yeah, so I would say two weeks before a show, we switch where we're performing or practicing. So for the dancers, they have these beautiful sprung floors in the dance studio that they can practice on. And then two weeks before a show, here we go and we're gonna perform on the stage. Now, unfortunately, our stage is not sprung. We put down Marley, but that's two weeks of a lot of pounding on their joints. So starting that first week, or that two weeks out from the show, I'm already informing our dancers, okay, you need to make sure that you're being aware of how many jumps you're doing. Do not overdo this right now. You're getting the choreography, you're getting the spacing, you're making sure you're finishing the final touches. You're doing those last minute choreographic changes that happen because we all know that happens. Um, but you have to be mindful of your body and you have to listen to what your body's saying. Otherwise, you're gonna start feeling 
pain in your joint. You're going to have that chin splint problem. And please come to me if any of that starts to happen. Um, but then when we get into tech week, I am backstage during that whole second week during their full run through. So when they're doing, you know, dress rehearsal and all of that, I'm backstage throughout the entire tech week and during the concert weekend. So that usually turns into some long nights, as I'm sure, Danielle, you've experienced firsthand. Yes. And Jacob, I forced you to experience firsthand from, <laughs> from working with me. Um, but yeah, so working backstage, what usually happens is whenever call time is, I show up approximately 30 to 15 minutes before that. Um, I can set up my area, my treatment table, my hot packs, any other modalities that I want with me that Monday or Tuesday night. And it just stays backstage for the rest of the week. Um, students can come to me prior to the uh, group warm-up and make sure that if there's something ongoing, if we're doing some type of rehab, if we're doing any manual technique, that we're getting them prepped for the day, prepped for the performance. But then there's things that happen during shows that you can never prepare for. So I'm also backstage on the, on the side in the wings during the performance. So there are certain times where we like to use props or we have dancers jumping off of six-foot boxes because it looks beautiful. But there's also a lot of risk with that. So we have to be prepared. And that's another reason why we do the entire tech week backstage. So one, I can become familiar with the choreography and know which dances kind of have a higher risk of injury during the show. Or if I know that I have a dancer who's dealing with this fresh ankle sprain, I have to know, okay, her piece is third and I need to be in the wings in the event something goes wrong. So during the actual show, there's communication between me, the stage manager, lighting director, um, and the curtain puller to make sure that in the event something does happen, we have a system, we have our emergency action plan that we practice out to make sure that we can expeditiously treat whatever injury is going on without um, view of the audience. So I'm backstage, I have my spine board, I have my splint bag, I have a lot of equipment back there for those emergencies, along with the treatment prior to or even treatment in the middle. Sometimes it's just a quick cramp, but a lot of times you never know. So you just have to be prepared for all of it. Can you talk about what some of the most common emergency situations you end up seeing backstage? Because I know I've dealt with some and I've seen other dancers get hit with props and curtains that get lowered and they get smacked in the face. So what are some of the common things that you see at Shenandoah? Um, I've seen, I've seen a lot of concussions. I've seen a lot of ankle sprains. Um, one year we had someone, and unfortunately, this was actually the year before I got here. Um, but we had someone actually walk off the stage because it was dark and fell into the orchestra pit. Um, someone was present to help in that situation, but, um, I just felt bad, you know, it's just like, oh, I don't want that to ever happen. So actually we do have lighting on the front of the stage now to ensure things like that don't happen when you're transitioning between pieces and it's complete black. But that's usually when you see the concussions, people running into each other. I see people falling and quick ankle sprains. 
so those are the things I commonly see. Not too often do you see someone fall in the orchestra pit. I hope not. And that's yeah. always a question on Rose's exams too about like spine boarding in an orchestra pit. So, because oh, because it actually happened. There. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it led to a fractured pelvis. So yeah. Oh my gosh. That sucks. Mm. It does, but that's why you need to make sure that there is some type of medical professional present. I know we we watch these beautiful performances. We see so many magical works with the arts, but we don't really always appreciate the risk that they put their bodies through or the demand that they're going through every day just to put that beautiful piece on for us. So it's just very important. Yeah, I agree with you. I know Jake and I have talked about how you see the dancer dancing beautifully across the stage. They go off the stage and they drop down and they're like, oh my gosh, that was terrible. But then they have to sprint across the back and come back on and put the smile on right before they get back on. And I remember doing that all the time, like at the point of tears, but suck it up because you got to go back on in two eight counts, you know? Same. When I was performing, I'm a chronic ankle instability individual. (laughs) So, um, oh, there were so many times, oh, my ankle is just crap. Like I can't do anything, but no, I'm going to put this point shoe on. I'm going to go back out there and I'm going to finish this somehow, some way. Um, and I think a lot of my personal injuries came from a lack of knowledge at the time in high school, a lack of healthcare professionals available that understood the demands because typically people would just say, Hey, just don't do that. That's not, that's not okay. Like, no, don't tell me I can't do what I love to do. Because you don't tell that to our NFL stars. You help them. Help me. So that was always my mindset growing up, and it still is. I, I, I understand the risk and demands, and sometimes you do need to say, no, we're going to sit this out. But sit me out and tell me what I need to do to help me get better and get back. And that's a much harder decision to make at the collegiate level because, like, I mean, this is their livelihood. Absolutely. Like a, a labral surgery is one to two months of not being in school, potentially. And here's the tricky part about that. So with NCAA, you have these medical red shirts. But for our collegiate dancers, this is their, their schooling. And if they're on a scholarship, taking a year off might affect their fi- financial stability. It might might affect their ability to even fund school when they get back. But There have been students that have had to take a year off or at least a semester off because of some type of medical procedure to improve their ability to finish the program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's unfortunate when that has happened. Do you feel like that, like, do you have to weigh that when you make decisions on participation or um, referrals to different, like, medical professionals? say I weigh it. I always have it in the back of my mind and I try to stay as open and honest with my dancer as possible. A lot of the individuals I'm working with are legal adults. So they're going to be able to make these decisions on their own. So my job is to present them with all of the information that I have and the best and worst case scenarios. So there are opportune windows where if you need a surgery, let's try to do it at spring break or 
you know, maybe you'll only miss four weeks. And there is a process in place at Shenandoah that you can miss so many classes doing papers and things like that where you don't have to sit out an entire semester. So mm -hmm. also being aware of the policies for your university or your performing arts program to make sure that, okay, if we have these last three weeks of school where you're out and all summer, you can come back in the fall without actually missing a year or missing a semester. Um, but I don't make those decisions. I just present all of the information mm -hmm. to my dancers and allow them to make the decision. Because sometimes it also depends on finances. It depends on do they feel like they need to go home to wherever they're from to have the surgery with someone they feel a little more comfortable with or someone that the family is more comfortable with. Um, and then I also talk to all of our dance faculty about the reality of, okay, this is where the dancer is. Is there any way we can get an extra week before you start, you know, penalizing them for absences? So currently the process that we have in place for um, Shenandoah, when a student visits my office for the clinic visits, if there's something where they have to miss or modify their performance in class, they will send an email to all of their instructors with me copied on the email because I can't just share their medical information. But they'll say, these are the modifications. I've been to the clinic, and this is where we are with my rehab process. Now, if the faculty member has any additional questions about, okay, well, we're doing this performance, they'll copy me back on the email, and we can discuss that as a group. So in, in I guess, kind of talking about, like, healthcare access for the collegiate dancer, is this something that's common across the country? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. Jacob, know, you was, know that. <laughs> that was a loaded question, I know. <laughs> um, I actually had, so in the PAM program, I'm sure Rose mentioned that students have to complete a capstone project for the performing arts medicine program. Um, so there was a student who recently completed her capstone program doing a survey of colleges and universities across America that have some type of healthcare professional in place during concert week or consistently throughout the school year. So there were approximately, and I wish I, I should pull it up and share it, but there were approximately 40% of universities that had coverage during concert week. Does that include during the show or just sometime during concert week? Sometime during sometime. concert week. But in terms of a dedicated healthcare professional, that, that percentage dropped to 10. That's so scary. It's, yeah. it's not there. And, and why do you think that is? Do you think it's just there aren't enough people passionate about treating these athletes or they're not considered athletes, therefore they don't need coverage? What do you think the biggest reason for that is? Unfortunately, I think one of the biggest reasons is it's not – it's not required, it costs. And dance departments usually don't have a large amount of funding to supplement a healthcare professional consistently. And I do think there are healthcare professionals that have passion. So I think the numbers continue to grow and there's enough people that have at least a general interest in treating this population. But financially, it's really hard even if Let's say the Michelle Pye University wants to do this, but we can't afford it. If there's some clinic that wants to do it, the dancers might not be able to afford it. So it's kind of, you know, unfortunately, a balance of 
finances. Now, Rose had kind of touched on this a little bit, and she was saying that um, she felt, at least given kind of SU as a case study, that athletic training programs at a university that had a conservatory would be a really good option to kind of start a, um, you know, like on-site clinic or coverage. What are your thoughts on that? I 100% agree. And honestly, so I told you about University of Pittsburgh being able to create that clinical placement at Point Park. That continued long after I left the University of Pittsburgh, and I love that. And Kevin uh, is not the program director now, but Amy is, and she still talks to me. We meet up at NATA, and she's just like, we still send students there. There's usually one athletic trainer student who has an interest, but even when there's not, it's still a great placement. And when we talk about just starting those small clinic placements or starting to provide some type of treatment through our athletic training programs, then you'll see the decrease in cost for either the department, for the individual dancer, or the increase in recruitment for that dance department. Because guess what? Dancers want to go to schools where their health and their physicality is appreciated and respected. So it can benefit both parties. And I do think athletic training is in a unique position to be able to provide that service to dance departments, whether it's a full-on conservatory or not. UNCG still has the position that I was in. Um, prior to me, Yatin, who actually teaches at George Mason, he was in that position. So it continues a line of there are, there are people interested and the dancers appreciate the care that's provided for them. So, and athletic trained students need the clinical placement <laughs> and you're going to get injuries. <laughs> you're mm-hmm. going to get the experience that you need. You might even get just as many skin diseases as wrestling because (laughs) it's possible. It's very possible. You'll learn so much. And with the amount of lifting going on in dance pieces now, you'll get a lot more than you expect. It's not just going to be lower extremity ankles all the time. You're getting backs. You're getting shoulders. You're getting elbows. You're getting concussions. You're getting hip all day and ankle every day. So... Mm -hmm. It's an experience that I think students should value, should gain, and then dancers should appreciate because it it helps everyone. No, it seems like at least more, and this is probably just uh, like a availability bias on my part because I'm I'm a little bit newer to the performing arts realm, but it seems like at least now there's a pretty big push for you know athletic training in the arts. Is that something that we're seeing from like a program perspective across the country? Yes, there is a huge push for rehabilitation for the artists. Um, We have IADAMS, the International Association of Dance Medicine and Science. We have Performing Arts Medicine Association for PAMA and Athletes in the Arts for ACSM. So we have a lot of organizations really pushing to increase the acknowledgement of the physicality of performing arts. There are special interest groups for PT and even Dance USA and Dance Health. So there is a huge push for it. I think Cirque du Soleil is really helping with that too because that helps bridge the gap or help people see performance as a more athletic event. So you see like, okay, that does need some type of medical professional. 
Yeah, because they're flying over and over and over and over <laughs> and flipping it. You know, it's easy to kind of bridge that gap, but I think it also helps to say, okay, well, what Misty Copeland is doing is also physicality, and that's going to need some type of rehabilitation or uh, a healthcare professional on, on stage. So I think on both sides, we're seeing a push for increased healthcare in the arts. I have a question. Um, I was able to work with an athletic trainer, an incredible athletic trainer, throughout the course of my sports residency, and we had many conversations about ATs versus PTs in this war that seems to be going on, and I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about why that might be going on or ways that we can get rid of those arguments and you know conflicts that arise between the two professions. There does seem to be conflicts between the two professions, and I'm not entirely sure why it, it's still going on or why there seems to be new battles every year about who gets to do what technique. And, you know, it's, it's always something. I always think that if we keep the focus on the patient or on our athletes, then why does it matter who's doing what? do whatever you're trained to do and whatever you're comfortable doing, even if someone else is doing the same thing. We're all trying to improve the health and wellness of our athletes and our patients and our performers. That has to come first. And in my mind, I don't feel like that has been. I feel like it's very territorial. And this is my, you know, this is my block. Don't play with my toys. So. I don't know how to fix that. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I know that I am lucky enough to work in a community where the tensions aren't high. I work with wonderful PTs. I work with wonderful PAs. I work with OTs. I work with ATs. I work with healthcare professionals. And the Performing Arts Medicine Program is built to be interprofessional, to make sure that all healthcare professionals are working with each other throughout the entire program. And I tried to minimize, oh, well, you're, you know, you should do this and you should do this. We all need to learn what the best care for the athlete or the patient or the dancer is. Know when to refer. If it's something that you don't know how to do, if you're not comfortable, or you just know someone would be better at it, refer. That doesn't make you any less of a healthcare professional. It makes you smart. It makes you an advocate for the patient which is what we're all trying to do. So I, I will say I feel lucky to work in Winchester where we work hand in hand with so many healthcare professionals. Um, and I think all of us generally coming from a similar mindset at Shenandoah really helps the community here. So we all work together through schooling, through the program, the School of Health Professions. We do a lot of interprofessional activities. So I think we just need to have more opportunities to work with each other, whether it's at IADAMS in your school or just in your local community to understand this other healthcare professional is very qualified to do some of these things. So let's not prevent them from doing their job. And, and this is, I'm going to kind of like echo a lot of Michelle's statements, but I think a lot of the, the kind of like tension that we see sometimes is just from a lack of understanding, especially when it comes to like scope of practice and like what, professions are able to do. I think a lot of times the, just the reality of, of it is that the stereotype for athletic training is like, you just, you guys just do ankle tapes and ice bags. And that's kind of like the view for a lot of people. 
but you know, the profession as a whole now is required. You're supposed to have a master's degree. Um, and there's a ton of education that you get that goes into that master's at level words. You learn a whole bunch <laughs> of stuff. Your brain gets really big. Um, and, and I would say like from, you know, at least my experience going through both programs, um, the educational level is very comparable when it comes to orthopedic injuries, right? Like PT school, obviously I learned more in depth about neurologic conditions and like special populations in pediatrics. But it, when, when it came to orthopedic and anatomical stuff, um, other than like learning more specific blood supplies and maybe some nerve roots and stuff in PT, it's the practical knowledge that I use on a daily basis is the same. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like I was probably more prepared when it came to orthopedic injuries, especially acute injuries from my right. athletic training education than in PT. So things like, you know, on-site stuff, concussions, all of that, because that's the core of athletic training, right? Mm-hmm. They are the healthcare providers that are there when stuff goes bad right. at an event. Um and we're certainly because you're you're in a sports residency program, and so you're getting exposed to a lot of that stuff too. And I, I think it's great to have more, you know, overlap and back and forth and commonalities between the two professions. But I think especially with like some people in the SCS community and the AT community, that can sometimes be a point of contention. And I, I think that came from uh, less regulatory stuff in the beginnings of the SCS mm-hmm. um, because. It was again. This is my opinion. I'm not. I'm. I'm trying to be as neutral as possible because I. <laughs> I have both credentials. Um, but it, I think there were a lot of. Um, there wasn't as much stringent control on hours for on-field stuff and exposure to acute injuries, and I think that was a big point of contention between the two professions, at least from like the SCSATC standpoint. And that's because, like, the accrediting program, um, Katie, for the master's and undergrad athletic training programs, they are very strict on what you need. And you have to do a ton of hours on field. And so I think for a lot of people seeing the X amount of hours in a residency program versus the, you know, two years that you get of, like, every day in a master's program, that that can sometimes feel like those two educational things are not equivalent. And again, it's not to take away from either profession. I think that's just, I think a lot of the contention comes from, from that. Um, but I think, again, it comes down to scope of practice, right? Yeah. Like they're both very broad professions. Um, you can do tons of stuff in PT. You can be a wound care specialist. You can be inpatient. You can work with like really interesting and, and out there like neurologic conditions. And athletic training is also seeing an increase in utilization in different areas that people don't really realize. We're seeing uh, athletic trainers being used as physician extenders, where it's almost a cross between like a PA or a nurse, depending on how that doctor chooses to use them. Um, and because in a lot of situations, especially at the professional level, like in pro sports, if you have a, a doctor who is overseeing your athletic training clinic, you're allowed to do a whole bunch of stuff as long as they're cool with it and they sign off on it. So whether it's like joint relocations or injections, IVs, there's a lot of stuff that you can do in athletic training that I think most people don't really realize. And so I think it really comes down to that educational level because my opinion in PT school is that you don't really get exposed to a lot of athletic trainers 
And so if you're, if you've gone through PT school, maybe you weren't really an athlete yourself or don't have exposure to that training room environment. When you go to a city and you maybe don't agree with the, the views that the athletic trainer has and you don't know them, you're kind of sometimes can be at odds. And then same thing on the other end of the spectrum, athletic trainers, a lot of times if they don't know the physical therapist and they have somebody who's going, who they didn't know is going to see this person at a clinic and they're getting two different things. That's a, that can be a point of contention. And so we, we see like that stuff happens sometimes. And I think the big thing is instead of getting like offended and like ticked off that like, Oh, so-and-so said this or so-and-so is telling this person this, why don't you just pick up the phone call and have a conversation with somebody, you know? And that's where I think, again, understanding, recognizing the, the okay. specialties and the scope of practice and trying to really foster like a community, because it goes back to what Michelle said. We, at the end of the day, regardless of what your, the letters after your name are, you are treating a human being and their interests and their needs should be put first and foremost. And so it doesn't matter like who's doing them a manip or who's going to stick a needle in them or whatever. What matters is like, can you provide them the best services that they need? And if for whatever reason, like you're not a specialist in that particular area, like, you know, go refer. And I think one of the really cool opportunities um, in this whole like interprofessionalism talk is like, if you're not sure what somebody does, like go shadow them, uh-huh. you know? And you're, Danielle, you're in a unique position in, in a sports residency because I'm sure you get to do, like, sideline coverage. Right. And you're getting to work with athletic trainers and see, like, all that stuff. Yeah. And it's it's hard. Like, it's there's a lot of stuff that goes down. There's a lot of stuff that I didn't know about athletic training. And there was no mention of athletic training in my DPT program. And so I really did not have an understanding, especially coming from a dance background, where I wasn't introduced to what an athletic trainer can do. So going into the residency, I felt a little bit blind about it, but working with an athletic trainer that I do, I have learned so much and more than I could have ever imagined. And I have so much respect for the field. I just wish more DPT students knew what athletic trainers did. And there was that interprofessional collaboration that you talked about because we collaborate with OTs a lot or with PAs or with other physicians, but there's no ATs that came and spoke to us or any type of shared knowledge that went on. And honestly, growing up, I don't think I would have known about athletic training if it weren't for my first shadowing experience being with a dual credential AT PT individual. And she was adamant that I should do AT first and PT next because it just helps you because it's almost like learning the orthopedic system and learning everything again, because you're learning the entire musculoskeletal system. You're learning the rehab, you're learning the treatments, you're doing that, but you do build on it in the PT when you go out into these neuro and the, the special populations and pediatrics, that's wonderful. And had I not shadowed with her, I probably would have never known that and would have just done a PT track. And who knows, maybe I never would have known that was an option, but I, I'm very glad I do know. I'm glad I do know now. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I think it's a really interesting profession, right? I, I don't think like, unless you played sports in high school and had exposure to it, you know, especially with this population that are, you know, our podcast is kind of targeted towards, there's probably not going to be a lot of exposure to athletic training. Um, but the unique thing with the field of athletic training is you probably get to spend the most time with your clients or patients out of any healthcare professional. Because if you're working with a team or you're working with a dance program, like your job is to be there for them. Like that's that's your squad. That's your fam. Like you're going to be there all the time. Mm-hmm. You and really so, get to know them. Yeah. And you you get to know all the drama, you know, who's <laughs> who, you know, like, you know, so-and-so is having relationship problems. So-and-so failed to test. Like you get all that stuff. But you and, also get to know the benefit of knowing the person. You get to be aware of okay, there's a mood change here. There might be an eating habit change. There might be some type of depression. Being there, being a part of the team all the time or a part of the department, I'm a part of the conservatory. I know my dancers. I know when something's wrong. I know, and I'm usually that first line of defense to say, we need to talk or you know, there's gonna be a referral to our nutritionist or whoever it needs to be because there's a lot of benefits from being there. That's a friend quote too. I was like, there's always a lot of benefits from just being there. <laughs> you don't always have to know what to say, but being there is important off subject, but there's a lot of benefits from being there. And to kind of go along that too, like, you know, you talk about direct access being a big thing in the PT population. That's literally what athletic <laughs> training is. Right. Right. Like right. they've been doing direct access since the inception of, of the, of the uh, career. The profession. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I think that's another interesting role is when you think about athletic trainers in a high school or collegiate setting for people that maybe don't have those economic means to get better access to healthcare, like that is their primary care professional. You know, they're the ones that are going to be hopefully giving them advice on, you know, nutrition or rehab or whatever. And if maybe if they're not, again, well-spoken on it, they can at least point you in the right direction. And so I think that, especially at like a collegiate level, is super critical moving forward for the dance profession as a whole. Mm-hmm. Because if we want to do things like reduce um, disordered eating, you know, if we want to help maintain like longevity and in, in careers and reduce injury risk and all that stuff, like having somebody that's there all the time, regardless of what their credentials are, but having somebody there all the time is like super, super critical. And that's the thing that I love about athletic training. And I love, I think it's, it was a really, really cool opportunity for me as a student to do a clinical with Michelle and Rose, like in the conservatory. Um, And then of course, obviously they like guilted me into joining the whole (laughs) dance. Um, But I I think that's one thing that probably isn't um, talked about as much. And again, with the population that this podcast is going out to, there's probably not a lot of people that have exposure to athletic training, but it is a super cool healthcare healthcare profession. And whether you want to do other like disciplines and be like a PA and an athletic trainer or a PT and an athletic trainer, or, you know, we've, we've had OTs that have done AT degrees. There's a lot of really interesting, like professional collaborations that you can do, um, as you kind of figure out what your career path is. But even if you're just an athletic trainer, it's not like you're just an athletic trainer. You get to go do some really cool stuff and and make a difference at a community level. 
So yeah, that's my t- welcome to my TED talk. Thank you for attending. Bravo. <laughs> I'll attend anytime. <laughs> but I obviously am like being in both professions. I'm passionate about both, and I, I think that especially in you know when we talk about getting more access to dancers in the dance population, I think to me like athletic training and conservatory stuff goes hand in hand. Like if you want somebody that's there all the going to be there a lot, be there for all the you know, all the shows for tech week, for rehearsals, for performances, like that is literally what athletic training is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's interesting, like as we see the the dance rehab community grow um, and because I also think Michelle's um, experiences are different than like when we talked about Megan and working on Broadway, like the way that Michelle describes backstage stuff is very different than the way that Megan approaches it. Yes. And so I wonder if, is that simply due to like the specific culture of, of the environments that they've created and been a part of, or is that more from just the professional background that they have? Sorry to, sorry to Ted talk. I just, <laughs> no, let it out because you, you are saying everything that is true. So I think that's what needs to be said. I think that's what the community, they, community that's listening to this needs to hear and just healthcare professionals make sure we're communicating with each other and learning about each other because you'll be very impressed with what each other can do that's that's how I view it I am so impressed with my OT students when we talk about hand specialty you know like yeah I learn a lot about the hand but I'm going to refer to my hand specialist when I need to because that's what they're trained in and there's just so much you learn about what others are taught when you work with them or when you just talk to them, you just have beautiful conversations. Allison, if you're listening up in Toronto, um, <laughs> we're probably going to ask you a whole bunch of questions for about the hand and, and splints and how to make instruments more ergonomic for people. Yes, mm-hmm. Allison. <laughs> mm. Shenandoah is very much big, very big on interprofessional stuff and it's reflected in i think the culture not only of the university but also of like winchester as a whole i think that um the larger community especially around dance i feel like has has grown to a very like inclusive and open and communicative um relationship which is you should have seen jacob he was super nervous like they're not going to accept me i'm like trust me You, you show them your turnout they'll accept you his turnout? Has, yes. Has he never told you about his turnout? No, he hasn't. We'll have, have to not, look at not, it after, I guess. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it. We'll do it off the record. I think yeah. I have a picture of you at the <laughs> iAdams conference showing off your turnout. You do. Um, I forget. I forget I'll have to find it and send it. I think the dance community as a whole is very accepting as long as you're accepting of them and your understanding of them. So I had no concerns about people accepting Jacob, this strong man. <laughs> I had no concerns about it because he know, he was passionate about learning their terminology, learning their demands, understanding what is needed. So I was just like, once they talk to you, they'll know they're in good hands and that's all that they care about. And I mean, I can't, I mean, it's, it's true. And we've talked about this a whole bunch on here that it, I feel like there's that hesitancy. The performing arts space can be very scary, I think, especially, and it, like, it sounds weird coming from like a, a white male, but um, 
it's it's like a weird space, right? Like there's not I feel like as as a male and coming from like a strength and conditioning background, it's the antithesis of everything that I am. And that was originally why I wanted to do it because it was so different than anything that I had ever experienced. Um, but they are like super welcoming. And as soon as you can use like dance words and like you drop some French stuff on them, they're like, Oh my God, you speak. Sold. My yeah. So I'm coming back to him. That's, that's exactly <laughs> how it is. So, yeah. but it's been even like the I Adams meeting, like I was super nervous to go to that. I'd never been out of the country before other than a, you know, GCP trip. I had to drive to Canada, got lost, like all these kettlebells in my car, got to find a McDonald's, a French McDonald's at three o'clock in the morning to get Wi-Fi to find my way to the hotel. And um, I had no idea what was going to happen, but it was, it was probably the coolest conference that I've been a part of because you have all these people from so many different backgrounds and so many different perspectives on like dance and trying to, that are all very passionate about trying to, to bring the profession forward and advance it. It was just like, I don't know. I just felt very much welcomed to the, uh, the community. And here I am. And I got Doing a two big things in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I encourage anyone listening to join I Adams if you're not a part of it. As Jacob said, it is a very welcoming community. There is a lot of information up on their website. The conference is by far my favorite conference that I go to every year. Uh, it alternates one year. It will be in North America. The next year it will be international somewhere overseas. I've had the opportunity to go to places like <sighs> so many places now. Um, <laughs> Finland, Montreal, Houston, back when it was in Houston, Pittsburgh one year, took me back to my roots. But we also just go to Malaysia to, uh, where was the other one that I went to? This one, Rose and I got there and it was a typhoon. So the conference was actually canceled, but people presented on the iAdams app from their rooms in Hong Kong, that's where we were. We were in Hong Kong. Everybody got on the app and did their presentation from their respective hotel rooms. It was so much fun. Like, no matter what, we have a ball. This year was supposed to be in Tokyo. Um, so I just really encourage you to become involved. They even have regional meetings. So you'll see meetings over in California or in uh, Florida. Just go to the website, find out more information, and really try to get involved. I, I serve on the development committee. If anyone's interested in joining a committee, we have a young professionals committee. We have a research committee that I'm also on. <laughs> and it's just great to be a part of it. And just go once, experience it. It will change your life and change your view of conferences. I second that. It's in Denver next year, right? Yeah. Didn't they, yeah. Did they it is. It? Did they it release is. it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, it I didn't is. Know if it was yeah. released. It is. Because I, I, I knew on the low low that it was in Denver. <laughs> I knew on the low low too. I was like, wait. <laughs> no, they put it out there. You're good. Perfect. Good. Yes. Sorry. It will no, be in Denver next year. <laughs> Danielle and I were actually speaking about this earlier today about potentially trying to do like a panel discussion or something um, to present at iAdams. I'm full support. If you want a <laughs> podcast table. And just have people come. I think it's awesome. We have a whole year to figure it out. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Or is there currently? So I mean, this is kind of random, but is there currently like an I Adams podcast? Is like, is there no space? Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm getting uh, excited. Let's make, something, <laughs> let's make something happen then. Absolutely. Uh, and again, the community at I Adams is so inviting and so friendly. Everyone would love to talk to you. So even if you had just a table and said, hey, can you come over and talk for five minutes? You would have such a database of knowledge, wealth, experience. It would be awesome and awesome for the larger community. Mm-hmm. So I, I intend to see that come about in the next year. <laughs> All right, Michelle, you've dropped several knowledge bombs on us so far today. Um, we're going to go into some rapid fire questions for you. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. We need, we need like music or something. I feel like we yeah. should get like, <laughs> do I need like beatbox or like play some sort of like scary yeah. techno song or something? Yeah. For the next episode. We'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Danielle, do you have one? I do. All right. What is one of the best or most worthwhile investments that you have ever made? <laughs> for my personal life or for my clinic? Because oddly enough, it's this couch in my house, which Jacob had to meet me at Sam's Club <laughs> and help me transport. You I have did. to. Yeah, it is my favorite thing I've purchased in my house. But if we're talking about in terms of the clinic, what do so I use a lot of hands-on manual therapy. So I, we use Graston. So I have my Graston tools, and I probably use them daily. So I think that's the, the most important investment, some type of soft tissue mobilization nice. for clinicians that are working with performing artists. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a big bang for your buck. It doesn't have to, doesn't have to be Graston, but whatever your <laughs> clinic can afford. Um, right save your hands, get the tools. And it, it really does help with the performers outcomes. Yeah. yeah. I know when I was with the KCB and I was working Nutcracker, those first two weeks, I tried to tough it out and just use my hands for everything. And by that third week of Nutcracker, I was almost at the point of tears trying to work on calves and you know how big dancers yes. calves muscles are. So yes. If you can't break that through that thing, you know, no, I'm no. with you. <laughs> what advice would you give to a smart, driven college student that is about to enter the real world? And what what advice should they ignore? Be kind to yourself and be patient with yourself. All of those expectations that, you know, you're going to just get the dream job right out of school. That's not it, it can happen, but it's a journey and you have to appreciate the journey and be kind to yourself and patient with yourself as you're on that journey. It's okay to make mistakes. You learn a lot from them. What was the second part of the question? What advice should they ignore? I have an odd one too, uh, specifically for my females out there. Um, ignore anyone that's trying to tell you that, you know, you have to have a kid right when you graduate or you have to start your family right away. You start your family whenever you want to. Don't listen to anyone else on that. That is a you decision. That's my advice. Boom. Mic drop. (laughs) Michelle, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on our show today. If anyone listening wants to get in contact with you, what is the best way that they can do that? My email is the best way to do that. So it is mpye.com. 
at su.edu. Very simple. Um, I have an Instagram. It's also mpye27. I think that's all I have because I'm getting up there in age. I have a TikTok now, <laughs> but I can't even tell you what my name is. But quarantine and my niece made me do that. Danielle's been trying to get me to make a TikTok for several weeks now. Yeah. And has sent me multiple dances. And I will say I have looked at the videos. They're I, entertaining. I have, I have attempted to, to maybe try to learn a couple of them. <laughs> Some of them are really hard. I will be honest. As yes. a dancer, I'm like, wow, those are hard. Yes. So uh, Instagram and Twitter is mpye27. And email is probably the best, mpye at su.edu. And Danielle, if people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way that they can do that? The best way would be with Instagram. My handle is Danielle Anise underscore DPT. So it looks like Danielle A Nice underscore DPT. And I mean, I say this all the time, but you are a very nice PT. So. And I appreciate it. It's fitting. (laughs) And then I'm my uh, meme page slash vlog page slash (laughs) podcast page is uh, at TMD underscore the movement docs on Instagram. Thanks again for tuning in this week where we spoke with Dr. Michelle Pye. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, or a topic that you would like us to discuss, shoot us an email at dbalpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, everybody. And remember, don't break a leg.